with the whole church thing, the whole Christianity thing. So that, that's how the people were feeling to, to who the, the book of Hebrews was written. Uh, and round about the time of the writing of the book of Hebrews, persecution was just beginning for the first time in the church. People weren't being murdered yet, uh, but certainly persecution was starting up. So I just want to reference Hebrews 10.32, where the writer says this, Remember those early days when you received the light, when you stood your ground in a great context in the face of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you had better and lasting possessions. So, so as you can see, these Christians are having a tough time, but they're not being murdered yet, although that was about to happen in a few years' time. So to just take you through this passage, verse 32, it talks about a contest, great suffering, Verse 33 refers to the Christians being insulted and being publicly insulted. It also talks about persecution. Verse 34 talks about some Christians are in prison. You see that there. And verse 34 in the latter half also talks about people having their property confiscated. So this is the kind of persecution that's happening in many places around the world today, but it was just starting up here in, in the book of Hebrews. Something else we need to understand is that the Romans were in power at this time in the first century, and Judaism was regarded as a legal religion. In other words, the Romans had fought the Jews for so many centuries, they'd finally given up and said, okay, we'll just tolerate you guys. And, and Jewish people had been given a special status. It was a, a kind of frowned upon religion, but it was at least tolerated. But Christianity was regarded as a new religion, and it did not have any legal protection. It was, a, it was an illegal religion. And so as this persecution starts up, I'm getting a lot of booming here, Mark. I don't know if we can... Uh, oh, sorry. Not Mark, Rachel. <laughs> the slides are great, Mark. <laughs> And so as this persecution is starting with these Jewish Christians, that's why the book is called Hebrews, because these are Jewish people that have come to accept Jesus. Thank you, that's great. As, as persecution is breaking out, these Jewish believers who've been kicked out of the synagogue, they're tempted now to go back and to live as Jews again, because life is hard, it's tough. And that's why the book of Hebrews is written, to say, don't give up, don't go back. Just some other thoughts about the book of Hebrews by, by way of introduction. I think this is the most difficult book in the New Testament to understand. Hey? I mean, it comes close to the book of Revelation. But if you've ever read the book of Hebrews, you will know there is some seriously complicated stuff in the book of Hebrews. I see a few heads nodding. 
There are a lot of obscure references to the Old Testament, lots of quotes from Leviticus, um, particularly from the first five books of the Bible. So it is a very difficult book to understand, and that's why I'm glad we're going to take 10 weeks to, to work our way through it, each of the pastors doing a few chapters. From a literary point of view, this is the best writing in the whole of the New Testament, Okay, so the person that wrote this was a highly educated person and didn't really use the common Greek language. It's a much more superior, sophisticated way of writing. You know you get two types of English, kind of everyday English and then, you know, hoity-toity English. Um, well, this was written in kind of like superior Greek, big words, well-written Etc., etc. Who is the author? Well, if you know, let me know, uh, because nobody knows who wrote this book. I used to think that perhaps it had been written by a woman and that that's why her name had been left off the book, but I've had to let go of that theory because there is a point where the author refers to himself in the masculine. But some suggestions have been Barnabas wrote it, Silas wrote it, or Apollos wrote this letter. But we really don't know who the author was. Um, but, but tradition says it could have possibly been one of these three guys. Date and place of writing is, is interesting. It's always good to try and pinpoint when and where a book of the Bible was written. And we know that the book of Hebrews was written before A.D. 70. Does anybody want to have a guess as to why we know that? The temple. Okay, you've been studying this. Yeah, the, the temple is still standing. And we can see in, in, in Hebrews chapter 8, the author talks about Jesus being a priest and then says, you know, not like the priests down the road in the temple doing their thing. So we know that the temple was destroyed in AD 70, but um, this book was clearly written before that because the author would have also made reference to the fact that the temple had been destroyed. I mean, that was quite a big deal when that happened. And particularly when he's writing about Christ being better than the, the, the priests and the priestly sacrifices, he, he would not have failed to mention that. Uh, and there is also evidence that the book was written before AD, uh, sorry, after AD 55. Uh, Nero also began his terrible persecutions in AD 67, and uh, that's when Christians were treated absolutely horrendously. Um, so I just want to show you a brief little video right now. It's four minutes long, and the purpose of the video is to just explain a little bit about the persecution of Christians. So here we go. This is the, the background the to the book of Hebrews. While the rumor was never proven, virtually every significant historian blames the fire on Nero himself. No doubt because of what Nero decided to do afterward. He immediately commandeered huge portions of Rome's scorched earth to erect one of the biggest, most opulent palaces in all the known world. It's known as the Domus Aria, or the Golden House. Nero was also shrewd enough to accuse a scapegoat for the fire to appease the general Roman public. The culprits of choice, 
the Christians, and blaming them sparked the first great outbreak of state-sponsored persecution that lasted for several years. The Christians were already somewhat of a nuisance, accused of cannibalism because they consumed the Lord's Supper, which commemorated the sacrificial body and blood of Jesus, and atheism because they refused to bow to the Roman gods, including the Caesar. So for Nero, they were the perfect target. An ancient non-Christian Roman historian alive at the time named Tacitus mentions the persecution in his annals. This is what he wrote. Nero falsely accused and executed with the most exquisite punishments those people called Christians, who were infamous for their abominations. The originator of the name Christ was executed as a criminal by the procurator Pontius Pilate during the reign of Tiberius, and though repressed, this destructive superstition erupted again, not only through Judea, which was the origin of this evil, but also through the city of Rome. First those were seized who admitted their faith, and then, using the information they provided, a vast multitude were convicted, not so much for the crime of burning the city, but for hatred of the human race. And perishing, they were additionally made into sports, they were killed by dogs by having the hides of beasts attached to them, or they were nailed to crosses or set aflame, and when the daylight passed away, they were used as nighttime lamps. Even though they were clearly guilty, people began to pity these sufferers because they were consumed not for the public good, but on account of the fierceness of one man. One such martyr who was killed by crucifixion was a prominent apostle named Peter, who had become the head of the church in Rome. Considering himself to be unworthy to experience the same death as Jesus, Peter requested to be crucified upside down. Another apostle, one of Christianity's most influential because he wrote almost half of the New Testament, Paul, was also martyred during Nero's persecution. But since Paul was a Roman citizen, he was exempt from the torture of crucifixion and was beheaded instead. Nero's persecution, while bloody and unspeakably cruel, quite simply backfired. Not only was there growing sympathy for the suffering Christians, their worldview and beliefs were brought into the limelight. Countless Romans witnessed these believers endure ghastly torture rather than recant their faith in Christ as Lord and his resurrection from the dead. Christian tradition holds that, except for John, all of Jesus' apostles were executed for their faith. For many Christians, this is a strong argument for the truth of their claims. The apostles, because they were eyewitnesses, knew for certain whether Jesus' resurrection was true or false. This set them apart. History is full of people willing to die for what they believe, but it's difficult to find any sane person who will give their life for a cause they know to be fraudulent. Those who defend the Christian faith ask this question. How likely was it that a man would choose torture and death if all he had to do was simply deny a myth? So the growth of this great world religion was fueled by the blood of its saints, all because of a fire at a racetrack. And Nero, after hearing of an assassination plot, committed suicide by stabbing himself in the throat. His legacy then drifted into history, and even today he's considered to be one of Rome's worst Caesars. So that is sobering stuff. 
but the book of Hebrews was written just before or in the few years leading up to Nero's persecution in AD 67. I hope you picked up from the video that Christians were accused of the crime of cannibalism for eating and drinking the body and blood of the Lord and for atheism because they didn't worship the, the gods of Rome. And there's a quote from the Fox's Book of Martyrs that describes all the terrible barbarities that was, was done to Christians, but we don't have to look at that now. I think um, there is one passage in the book of Hebrews that summarizes the whole book of Hebrews, and it's Hebrews 10 verse 32. So I, I want to read this little passage to you because I think it's, it's just a great passage that, that conveys the whole message of the book. Here it is. Remember those earlier days after you'd received the light, when you stood your ground in the context of the face of suffering. You were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. And in other times, you stood side by side with those who were treated like that. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. Because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you've done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. My righteous one will live by faith. That's referring to Christians. If he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but are of those who believe and are saved. So in these verses that I think summarize the message of the book of Hebrews, there's the description of the background of persecution. Then there's the, the, the plea for people not to lose their confidence, not to give up, and to, to endure the, the hardships that are coming their way. I want to jump ahead now to understanding the structure of the book of Hebrews. The next preachers in the series are going to be taking, you know, chapter 1 and 2, for example, and working through it. My job today is to give an overview of the whole book. And I've got another video for that in just a moment. Uh, in fact, let's see that, that next video right now. Before you cue it in, Mark, um, it's from the Bible Project. How many of you have watched the Bible Project videos. Okay, good. You know, this is probably one of the best resources that I've discovered out there for explaining the Bible. It's absolutely fantastic, and they've got hour-long podcasts that actually go with all of these things. But watch this brilliant overview of the book of Hebrews, and then I'll take you through some of the highlights, and then we'll be done. The Letter to the Hebrews. The author of this letter is anonymous, and people have wondered for a long time whether Paul wrote it or maybe one of his co-workers like Barnabas or Apollos, but really we just don't know. 
In chapter 2, we discover that the author had a first-hand relationship with the disciples who were themselves around Jesus, so we know that this letter is anchored in the teaching of the apostles. We also don't know who the audience of this letter was, or even where they lived. The author knows them really well, and he assumes that they have a thorough knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures, especially the storyline of the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, about how Abraham's family became the nation of Israel, about how Moses led them out of slavery in Egypt to Mount Sinai, where they received the Torah, and they made a covenant with God where they built the tabernacle, where the priests offered sacrifices, and also about how they wandered through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. The author just expects that the readers know all of the details about these stories, and so most likely the audience is made up of Jewish Christians. That's where the name of the letter comes from. We also have clues from chapter 10 that this church community was facing persecution and even imprisonment because of their association with Jesus. Some in the community were walking away from Jesus and abandoning the faith altogether. And this explains the purpose and the structure of this letter. First, there's a short introduction, which is followed by four sections where the author compares and contrasts Jesus with key people and events from Israel's history. Jesus is first compared with angels in the Torah, second with Moses and the Promised Land, third with priests and Melchizedek, and lastly with the sacrifices and the covenant. And the author has two main goals in all of these contrasts. The first goal is to elevate Jesus as superior to anyone or anything else, showing that Jesus is worthy of all their trust and devotion. But his second goal is this, it's to challenge the readers to remain faithful to Jesus despite persecution. So in every section, he includes a strong warning not to abandon Jesus. So let's dive in now and see how this all unfolds. The elevation of Jesus begins in the opening sentence of the introduction. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors in many different ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. So the author saying that Jesus is superior to all of the previous ways that God has revealed himself to Israel. He then makes this astounding claim that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's nature. These metaphors are making the closest possible identification between Jesus and God. So Jesus is what the rays of light are to the sun, or Jesus is what the wax impression is to the signet ring. For this author, there is no God apart from Jesus. Jesus is God become human as the Son. And it's this elevated view of Jesus that's then explored throughout the rest of the letter. In the first section, the author compares Jesus with angels, which might strike you as kind of odd, like why angels? In Jewish tradition, it was taught, based on Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 2, that the Torah and the words of God were delivered to Moses at Mount Sinai by angels. And so by saying that Jesus is superior to angels, the author is claiming that Jesus and his message of good news are superior to all previous messengers of God's word. And so the first warning flows from this very point. If Israel was called to pay attention to the Torah that was delivered by angels, how much more should we pay attention to the message that was announced by the Son of God? And not only that, given Jesus' status high above the angels, how remarkable is it that he gave up that high status to become human, to suffer, and to die? In Jesus, we see God's greatest glory and God's great humility as Jesus sympathetically joined himself to humanity's tragic fate. In chapters 3 and 4, the author moves on to argue that Jesus is superior to Moses, who led the people of Israel through the wilderness and built the tabernacle. 
Jesus is also the leader of God's people, but in him we see not the builder of just a tent, but of all creation. Then the author retells the story of how the Israelites rebelled against Moses in the wilderness, and they lost their chance to enter into the rest that God offered them in the promised land. And so here comes the second warning. If Jesus is greater than Moses, how much higher are the stakes if we rebel against him? We also are in a wilderness-like environment where we have to trust God for the future rest in God's new creation. So let's make sure that we don't rebel like Israel did in the wilderness and lose out on God's gracious offer to enter his new creation. In chapters 5 through 7, the author then compares Jesus with Israel's priests that come from the line of Aaron. Their role was to represent Israel before God and to offer sacrifices that atoned for or covered over the sins of the people. But, he points out, the priests were themselves morally flawed people, and so they constantly had to offer sacrifices for their own sins as well as for everybody else's. Something more was needed. And so he then argues that Jesus was that something more. He's the ultimate priest. But Jesus did not come from the line of Aaron. Rather, Jesus was a priest in the order of Melchizedek, that mysterious priest king from ancient Jerusalem, and he appears in the stories about Abraham. We also find in Psalm 110 that the messianic king from the line of David will be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. So the author's whole point is this. Jesus is the ultimate priest king. He's morally flawless. He's eternally available for his people. And so he's superior to any other mediator between God and humans. And thus comes his warning in this section. To reject Jesus is to reject one's best and only chance to be fully reconciled to God. So don't do that which transitions us into the last comparison in chapters 8 through 10. The author shows how Jesus' death on the cross was the ultimate sacrifice superior to all the animal sacrifices offered in the temple. Those sacrifices had to be offered constantly, both daily but also yearly on the Day of Atonement. Jesus offered his life once and for all, and it was sufficient to cover the sins of the whole world. And so the author warns the audience from walking away from Jesus. It's like turning your back on a gracious offer of God's forgiveness. Why would you do that? Jesus' sacrifice is permanent, he says. And it's the foundation for the new covenant spoken of in the prophets, where all sins are forgiven. So now that the author has elevated Jesus through all of these contrasts, this final section is one big challenge to follow Jesus. So think big picture. In Jesus, they have found God's very word. In Jesus, they have hope for the new creation. Jesus is their eternal priest. He's the perfect sacrifice. And so now they should follow all the great models of faith found throughout the story of the scriptures, and they should remain faithful to Jesus, trusting that despite whatever hardship and persecution, God will not abandon his people. That's the basic flow of thought throughout the letter, which the author calls right here at the very end, a brief word of exhortation. Here's a couple of extra tips for reading this letter. Whenever the author quotes from the Old Testament scriptures, which is like every other sentence, stop and go look up the reference and read that quotation in its original context. And sometimes you'll be puzzled, but more often you'll see all kinds of extra cool connections that you would never notice otherwise. It's totally worth the effort. You should also just know that these warning passages they're going to make you uncomfortable, and that's kind of the point. They're not there to make you afraid. They're there to show you that rejecting Jesus is foolish because he's so awesome. 
These warnings all serve the larger purpose of the letter, to show that Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God's love and mercy. And that's what the letter of the Hebrews is all about. Even though you've heard enough, I'm going to carry on. <laughs> because the way we learn is by repetition. So if you can forgive me, I'm going to go over some of the high points of the video and just read uh, a few pertinent scriptures. And the reason for doing this is that as over the next nine weeks now, we study the book of Hebrews, you need to be able to understand the big picture so that you know how everything fits in. So uh, first, first point that gets made in this video is the importance of understanding the Old Testament. Uh, and I really hope that all of you sitting here today do have a good grasp of the Old Testament, that you understand who the patriarchs are, the, the period of the judges, uh, the period of slavery in, in Egypt, the time in the wilderness, uh, the various monarchies, the, the backstory to the prophets, uh, the exile, etc. The, these are, are things that are critically important for understanding. And I've got a few scriptures that just you know, really bring home that point, but uh, let's just skip those, Mark. So the video makes the point that the book of Hebrews is all about the superiority of Jesus in, in every way. So that's what this book is about. And, and in light of that fact, the need for us to remain faithful and not to give up. So this is the main message of Hebrews. Jesus is superior, don't give up. So I want to take you through those four blocks now. Remember the four ways in which Jesus is superior. And the first is Jesus is superior to the angels. And as the video explained, Angels were involved in some small way in the establishment of the Mosaic Covenant. And so the warning that we find in Hebrews 2 is this, and I want us to look at these scriptures. We're going to look at all four of the warnings and, and just get our heads around this. The writer says, Hebrews 2 verse 1, we must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we've heard so that we don't drift away. For if the message spoken by angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? So the message is, Wow, if you thought the old covenant was important, and if you thought it was fantastic that angels were part of setting up that new covenant, just think how important the new covenant must be if Jesus, who is God himself, was the one who established that covenant. So you can't go back to Judaism. You need to to stick with your faith in Jesus. And, and again, the warning is we must, we must pay more careful attention because we mustn't drift away. 
drift away. I don't know if any of you have ever been caught in a, in a riptide or something like that. I was, was once on a yacht um, moored out at sea. Well, maybe it wasn't moored, but we decided we'd all jump off the yacht and swim around. You know how it is. It's great fun. Um, but it is incredible how quickly you can get left behind. Um, and, and that's what the, the author's talking about here, not so much the swimming in a yacht, but, but this idea of just plopping into water, and before you know it, though you did nothing, you've kind of drifted, and there's a massive distance to where you need to be. And that's the image here. He's saying, don't let drifting happen to you. In other words, this is not something you even need to do. It, yeah. We must pay more careful attention to what we've heard, the Christian faith, so that we do not drift away. Don't allow yourself to drift away. So that's the first reason for not going back to Judaism. It's the fact that, wow, this is not even just angels who established this covenant, but God himself. The second way in which Christianity is superior is that Jesus is way superior to Moses and the promised land. The promised land was a real land, Israel, which at that time was flowing with, with milk and honey. It, it was a fertile land, a wonderful land, and it, and it was the promise of God for the people. And we read in Hebrews chapter 3 that Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses. Moses was faithful as a servant in God's house, bottom line 6. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. There again, this is a way in which the Christian faith, the new covenant is so superior to the old. The old covenant just had Moses. He was God's servant, but in the new covenant, we have God's son. And so the warning, which is found in Hebrews 3.7, is today if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Don't rebel like they did, and then they didn't get to go into the land. If you're a, a believer in Jesus, don't rebel. Don't lose faith, otherwise you won't get to go into your eternal rest. Forget a land. There's an eternity of a new Eden waiting for you. Then the third way in which Jesus is superior is to the priests of the Old Testament. And in Hebrews 5, it's, it's described about how the priest had so many weaknesses. And, and when he wanted to offer sacrifices, he'd first have to offer a few for himself. And only then could he offer sacrifices for the people. And so the author tells us that Jesus is a far superior priest. Hebrews 5 verse 9 he became the source of eternal salvation for all. And then we get this very interesting warning. It's the third warning in Hebrews 6. And I'm going to read it to you because it's, it's a powerful passage. The writer says it's impossible for those who've been enlightened. You've, you've come to understand the gospel. You've had a revelation of who Jesus is. 
who have tasted the heavenly gift. Does that mean they've shared in communion? Or is that a metaphor for Jesus and the life in the Spirit? It's impossible for those who have been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift, who've shared in the Holy Spirit. You've, you've experienced the power of the Spirit in your life. You've tasted the goodness of the Word of God. You've, you've encountered God speaking to you and changing your life through His Word. And you've experienced and tasted the powers of the coming age, the kingdom that's going to break into this world. You've already had a foretaste of that, an experience of that. These are believers that are being referred to here. People who have been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, experienced the goodness of the word. If they fall away, it is impossible to be brought back to repentance because to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again. I wonder who, who's going to get to preach this passage. It's going to be an interesting sermon in the series. So that's how the warning fits in. And then the final warning, uh, sorry, the final way in which the new covenant and the Christian faith is, is superior, has to do with Jesus' sacrificial work. Jesus' sacrificial work. This is not just animals being offered again and again on an altar for your sins, as in the Jewish faith. But Jesus himself, the perfect sinless priest, offered his own life once and for all. And then there's the warnings of Hebrews 10, verse 26. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left. Verse 28, anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who's trampled the Son of God underfoot and who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him? So this, friends, is the, is the message of the book of Hebrews. Persecution is on its way. It's not easy to be a Christian. You might be tempted to take an easier road in life. For these Jewish converts, it was to go back to being Jews. Easier, simpler, and after all, we're worshiping the same God. But the writer says, don't do that. Don't give up. Don't allow yourself to passively drift away. Because the mediator of the new covenant is way superior to the mediator of the old. The promise of the new covenant is not just a nice place to have a farm. It's an eternal new destiny, heaven. The priests of the new covenant is not some sinful priest doing his best again and again, offering sacrifices in the hope that God would accept them. It's the sacrifice of Jesus. And fourthly, his, his sacrifice is infinitely greater. Hebrews 10 verse 35, So do not throw away 
your confidence. You need to persevere. And I love how that verse ends in verse 39. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. Amen. <laughs> We're going to share in communion now, so whoever's doing that, come on up, Rachel. Rich, Rich. <laughs> but I'm going to pray as well. Thank you, Rich. Lord, this is a difficult book to understand. And we commit this series to you, Lord, and pray that you would be with those preachers and people who are going to be preparing these messages. We pray, Lord, that we would be encouraged in our faith as we hear the exhortation not to, not to give up, not to drift, not to, to fade. Help us, Lord, to appreciate just how amazing the new covenant is. Your sacrificial work, your, your intercession for us, Lord, your mediation, your incarnation. How could we go back? How could we, after having tasted and experienced and after having been sanctified by you, set aside, how could we go back? We pray that you would keep us strong in our faith, Lord. And may our faith truly be, be nurtured as we eat and drink together right now. 